I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's sponsored insight is Magnus Grimelon, the CEO and founder of Antler Capital, the world's largest day zero investor. Antler's pre-seed strategy canvases 27 countries, 1,000 portfolio companies, 5,600 founders, and over 120,000 annual applications for 2,000 spots in its residency programs. Magnus founded Antler in 2017 after serving as the co-founder of Zalora, a tech-enabled fashion brand in Asia. Our conversation covers Magnus' journey from growing up in rural Norway to developing a global startup platform, characteristics of successful entrepreneurs, and the process for building the infrastructure for founders to solve important problems around the world. Before we get going, with all the buzz about iConnections Global Alt Conference last week, I got to thinking about other types of connections. I found myself drawing parallels between Brad Jacobs' measurement-driven management approach you'll soon hear about and George Michalakis' measurement-driven investment approach. At their core, both start with the vision, develop goals in accordance with the vision, and articulate and measure KPIs that move towards those goals every day. That got me thinking about KPIs for spreading the word and wondering if I hadn't gone far enough to articulate KPIs to you. So this week, let's give it a shot. First, hop on netsuite.com slash allocators and download their KPI primer. Next, rather than just listening to Brad's wisdom, listen twice and then write down your three most important takeaways. When you've finished, send two emails to colleagues, peers, or friends to share those lessons and suggest they listen to the show for themselves. And your final task is to go on CapitalAllocators.com and sign up for that premium membership you've been meaning to for a while now. With all that extra work, you'll be amazed at how much more you get out of the show. So when I say thanks so much for spreading the word, now you know what I mean. Please enjoy my conversation with Magnus Grimela. Magnus, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Big fan. Why don't you take me all the way back to your upbringing? Yeah, so I grew up in Norway on the countryside on a small farm there where we actually didn't have farm animals, but we had huskies. My father was a competitive dog sledger, so we had 36 huskies. Really in the middle of nowhere, lots of forest nature was outside all the time. It's about eight kilometers to the nearest store. Then at some point, I got to hear about this school called United World Colleges, a high school where you can apply for a scholarship. It brings people together from all across the globe. I thought it was amazing to study with people from everywhere. So I applied for a scholarship, luckily got in, so I ended up doing high school in the UK with people from 82 nations. It's like a boarding school. We lived together for two years in an old castle. We did the international baccalaureate there. What was it like going from the farm to this international school? It was super interesting because you got to meet people from a lot of different cultures. The other thing that was a bit of a shock is I'd always done pretty well in school in Norway. And in Norway, I think there was a few hundred people applying for the scholarship. In India and in China, there was tens of thousands of people applying for the same scholarship. So people were incredibly academically rigorous and it took me about a half a year to catch up. So it was a big change, but tremendous amount of fun and you learned a lot outside of this, the pure subjects. And where did that take you through when you left school? Then I did the complete shift again. As my father, my grandfather, many generations, I joined the military after high school and wanted to try out for the Norwegian Naval Special Forces, which is the equivalent to the Navy SEALs here in the US. It's called Marine Commandon. So first I did basic training, then tried out for the Special Forces, got in. The whole focus then was Norway and Norway security. So going from a very international 
environment to something completely different. But you learn a lot about yourself because it's a combination of mental challenge and a physical challenge. What did you most learn from that experience? The number one thing I learned is that mental resilience is one of the most important things you can take with you in life if you're trying to do something really difficult. So I think we were about a thousand people who tried out for the special forces when I was there. After about half a year of selection, we were 10 people left. And then when we started, there were people there who were Norwegian champion in this, world champion in that, incredibly athletic individuals who lasted much shorter than people who were just determined to succeed. And the ones who really made it all the way to the end were people with very strong mental resilience and this mindset that failure is not an option. What was it inside you to that point that you think allowed you to have that mental fortitude to succeed through that process? The most important thing when you grow up, the most important thing I think about when it comes to my own children, at some point of time, it's important to get inspired by something. It's also one of my favorite books, is Man's Search for Meaning, where they were looking at people in the concentration camps during the Second World War and what made some of them able to survive these horrible conditions for a long period of time. And it was very related to having a purpose. Having a purpose early on in life is incredibly important to build an inner engine. And if you expose your children's opportunities where they can get that inspiration, that's one of the greatest gifts you can do as a parent. And my parents did that in various ways. And at some point in time, you never know when it will happen. But for me, it happened when my great-grandmother died. I started thinking about life and death and so on at a quite early age. My father came from a more communist type of bringing. He believed you live and then you die. And he gave me a number of books, including Franz Kafka, which was very hard to read at that point in time. My mother is more spiritual. And in the end, I started thinking a lot about what do you want to accomplish in life in an early stage and got inspired to make a small difference because I lived. And I think that part was very important when I did the military training because for me, it just felt like an opportunity to become mentally much stronger, serve my country. But at the same time, it was a building block for something I could do later. It's also preparation for what's coming next. What did that feel like when you went to college? When I came to college, I was 23, where most other people were younger. So it was me and the Israelis and Singaporeans, also some US vets who were the same age. Luckily, actually, a few of my friends from high school were in the senior year at Harvard at that point of time. I got to know all my freshman classmates, but I also had friends in the senior class. I think for me, it was a great start of college. And it was also an interesting time. I came there in 2003. If you think about the tech ecosystem, you have obviously these waves of tremendous growth, very often driven by big platform shifts. And you had the big internet platform shift happening in the late 90s. And then you had the big boom leading up to 99, 2000. And then there's always a bit of a winter after, which was 2001, 2002. But in 2003, it started picking up again. Quite similar, actually, to what you experienced after the global financial crisis and what you experienced after the peak in 2021 and we're experiencing now. But I came as that new cycle started. And the other combination of internet companies becoming more serious but you also had the start of the mobile revolution. And obviously some tremendously interesting companies came out of campus. So that's also what I got really inspired about tech. How did you engage in that during your time in college? The most visible one on campus was Facebook. So Facebook was launched, I believe it was in the early part of 2004. So I'd been on campus for six plus months. And this platform launched where in the beginning, it was just an online website where you knew everyone on Facebook and you could poke them. That was what it was doing. But then very rapidly, friends in other schools and also in Europe came onto the platform. You saw this tremendous opportunity to influence the entire world with one technological shift. At the time when you were studying and thinking about doing what you were going to do next. A couple of friends started a couple of small businesses at the time, including Clicker, which at the time actually was the largest social network in Norwegian universities. Facebook ended up becoming a trillion dollar business and we sold ours for close to $100,000, so it was already a different success factor. I learned a lot from doing these things on the side of studying at college. And then how did you decide what to do when you're involved in these startups, but you're also just coming out of college at the time? We actually exited the two that we started when we were there, so it was two small exits. We started another one, which was a property investment company, which was literally just investing into properties. That one we kept for a few more years. 
But I was very focused on continuing my learning journey. I've become very interested in technology. But at the same time, I've been in high school in a full scholarship. Then I was in the military for a few years, which is not the greatest pay in the world. And then I was in college also at the full scholarship. So I decided to go out and get a full-time job. So I joined McKinsey because I want to work with tech companies all across the globe. And at the time I joined, I was working in Europe at the beginning, but then quickly in such an organization, when you become an expert on the topic, you are in demand all across the globe. So I worked in Europe, I worked in the US, I worked a lot in Asia with everything from deep tech companies to the consumer side of things. So the whole value chain and got to see it across Asia, Europe, and the US. And that was a tremendous learning journey. So I was there for five and a half years after college. How did you know when it was time to get back into the entrepreneurial side? So I always knew that I wanted to do that. So for me, the plan was to stay in McKinsey for two years and then start something. But I had such a great time. I was learning so much. Also was on a quite rapid promotion trajectory with amazing colleagues. So I ended up staying much longer than I was planning to do. However, I did get exposed to Asia during that period of time. It had been growing already for a while, 6 to 8% rather steadily. And Southeast Asia in particular was a region that had been growing very fast. Digitalization was happening incredibly fast, but the tech space and the venture space hadn't really started yet. So 2012, when I decided to leave McKinsey, $200 million a year was put into venture in Southeast Asia, which is a population of 600 million, very fast growing. And we thought that this e-commerce revolution that you've seen in the US and Europe also would happen there, which obviously, in retrospect, is a pretty evident idea. But when we started, the only way you could really buy things online there is getting shipped in from Japan or from Europe or from the US or from China. And it was a terrible customer experience, right? Sometimes you would get stuck in customs. Sometimes you had to pay much more. You never knew when it arrived. Me and a few other people from McKinsey decided to leave and set up fashion e-commerce business there. We later grew that to the biggest platform of its kind in the region. Sometimes when you think about starting a business, you think about passion or a need you're solving. There isn't really anything in your background to that point that would point to fashion. How do you think about what matters when you're going to start a new business like that in terms of the passion of what you're doing? We were very passionate about the opportunity, not the field itself, but it was just 600 million people who didn't have access to some of the biggest brands in the world. There was a big trend around Korean fashion at the time, which you couldn't really access anywhere. So it just felt like this obvious problem that someone would solve at some point in time. If you think about building an e-commerce company, whether it's fashion or any other thing that you're selling, the core product that you're selling is a very small part of the value proposition. What you're ultimately building is an executional machine. You're building logistics networks, payment systems, you're building backend technology, discovery system. You need the best performance marketers in the world, and you're optimizing a funnel. The fashion part of it, we brought in people who are way more passionate and also way better at fashion than I am to ensure that we have the right products on the platform. Now, what made that particular area quite interesting is it combines a little bit of creativity with hardcore execution and technology. It's quite exciting that it wasn't only tech and execution we're talking about, but also winning in the creative space and ensuring that we have the right people on the creative side. So what happened with that business? So we sold the business in 2015. At the time, it was the second largest exit in Southeast Asia. We sold the Global Fashion Group, which later IPO'd in, in Frankfurt. I stayed on for two years as chief operating officer of that group, which operated across 27 countries in South America, Europe, and Asia, and Australia. So at that point in time, I obviously learned a lot about constructing and setting up large organizations and pulling out synergies and building unified tech across multiple locations. But I knew that after my two-year management lock-in, I wanted to go on and build Antler. What was the thought process behind Antler? We saw in Southeast Asia this tremendous growth of the tech ecosystems where we had built this business which was pretty successful. And then the number of the people that we had hired and trained would go on to build the next generation great companies. So Shopee, which is the largest e-commerce platform there now, part of C Group, which peaked at more than $100 billion valuation, was built by Chris Feng, who was part of the Solar team. Michael Ferrari built Stashaway. Gojek, which IPO does go to, was built by two XLR people. Shopback, Aura, Lockout, multiple really great companies in the region was built by XLR people. 
And then we realized similar thing is happening in ecosystems all across the globe. You go to Silicon Valley, you obviously have the PayPal mafia, the Facebook mafia, and so on. You go to Stockholm today, and there's five or six unicorns that came out of Spotify. Helsinki, a tremendous amount of great companies coming out of Nokia. Go to Toronto, amazing companies coming out of the BlackBerry team. And you literally can go city by city, and you can trace back a lot of the next great founders to these companies. And we got very excited about figuring out where does the next generation great people come from and how can you create the biggest opportunity for them to succeed in solving very important problems. So we got excited about backing people from the very early stages in building the company that they want to build and realized that was also an asset class where if you go to later stage investing, Series A, B, C, and so on, or if you go to private equity or growth investing, there are some pretty large global platforms which invest all across the globe. But at the very, very early stages, there weren't a global platform that can provide similar type of professionalism to that investment and be a strong partner to founders that had just got started. And we thought, hey, this is a tremendous opportunity to deliver strong returns to investors, but it's also a tremendous opportunity to support great people in solving important problems and through that having a big impact on the world. I've been thinking about that for a long time while we're building Solora, as mentioned, and we kept iterating this model spoke to almost every large and well-known early-stage VC in the world. We spoke to the most professional universities and companies out there that manages big funnels of people in terms of how do they select the very, very best people. and just kept iterating and iterating this model. So for many years, I wanted to launch this. So when you're thinking about these different pockets of, say, a company that spawns a whole bunch of different businesses from entrepreneurs all over the world and wanting to capture that, where do you start if you want to deliver tremendous returns in early stage venture capital, number one thing you need is access to the best people. It doesn't matter if you're an amazing decision maker if you don't have access. Now, obviously, in the public markets, it matters more to be an amazing decision maker because you have access to any company you want to buy. But in early stage and the earlier you go, the more it matters. The best founders in the location where you operate in need to think that you are a very valuable partner to them from day one. Why would they take your capital versus someone else? Because the best founders in the world have plenty of choice in terms of where they want to get capital. A is focusing a lot on how can we be the best partner to the best founders, which gives you access. Then once you have access, you need to make the right decisions on who you want to back. But that's easier and there's more well-established. What are the characteristics of an amazing founder team, product market fit, and so on? Lastly, you need to create a flywheel where this gets better and better every year. So the number one thing we focused on first was access. Now, obviously, that's also why we first launched in Asia, because that's where I built my last business. And through that, we had tremendous networks. So people also were quite excited about working with us, given the success of my last business. And then we started off with that. We got about a thousand applicants. We selected 62 people and we started working with them for three months before we made our first 13 investments in October 2018. And then since then, we tried to improve on that model. So let's just dive through what Antler is today, in terms of the scale and scope of what you're doing. Basically, the fundamental model is still the same. We look for amazing founders. And last year, we got 131,000 applicants from founders who want to work with us, who applied to come into one of our programs across 27 operating locations across the globe plus three other offices where we have support networks. And we selected last year about 2,000 of these 131,000 applicants in batches of 50 to 100 people that joined one of our offices for three months to validate their business model and to get the first bit of capital. We make about 400 investments per year. We lead pre-seed rounds, and then we have follow-on capital to back the very best founders in their subsequent rounds to concentrate capital in the winners. It's split in two strategies, pre-seed to series A and series A to series C, where most of the decision-making on the early stage investments are done locally, while the later stage investment decisions are done globally. You said 27 geographies. In each one of those, what does each of those offices look like? These locations are places like Tokyo, Seoul, Singapore, Bangalore in India, in Africa, most European capitals, we're in four cities in the US, South America and Africa. And each of them, we have space for about 100 people. Every half a year, about 50 to 100 new founders will come in who are top 2 to 3% of the founders we could find in that region over the last six months. 
And these founders can come from anywhere. So some of them are sourced locally and some want to come to that specific region to build companies. And we often see that the combination of people with an international background and local background works really well in building great companies. So for example, in the US, I think 70% of unicorns have a first or second generation immigrant co-founder. So 1,500 people will come into one of these offices. We work with them for three months where they have a coach. They have access to the other founders that are in the court. And then we also evaluate them because at the end of the three months, we need to decide whether we want to back these teams or not. That's when they come to the IC. What does your team look like in each of the locations? So in each of the locations, you have two partners. Typically, the partners are like me. So they've built something great in that region. So if you go to Bangalore, for example, Rajiv Sistra is there. He built Urban Ladder, which is one of the most successful companies there. If you go to Germany, Alan Pernskin built Westwing, which is one of the most successful companies there. The people running these locations are very successful founders in that region before, which is necessary to attract the best founders into that program. They also then have a team of about six to eight people around them, depending on the size of the locations. It's a team there that ultimately are focused on two things, which is finding the very best founders in the region and then being a really good partner to them as they're just getting started. How do you go about taking a team of whatever is six to eight people and getting these 130,000 applicants for your program? Applicants come from many places. The best location to get applicants these days is through referrals. We have a founder community of about 7,000 people now who refer people to us. We have an advisory network of about 1,000 people. We have 2,600 angel investors in our network. We have 3,000 VCs in our network. And they tend to refer founders to us who are too early for them or they believe are really strong founders, but they haven't really gotten started yet. So there's no kind of business to invest in. This is a tremendous referral network. And by far, that's where you get strongest founders. The second place is we do outbound headhunting. So Index, for example, the entire LinkedIn database, we built a tool called Haystack. We pulled all the data we could from public sources, combined it with our own data on now more than 400,000 applicants and more than 1,000 portfolio companies. And it literally gives people a score based on how strong a founder they might be. And we reach out to them. And we might reach out to them one or two or three or four years before they actually decide to build a business. They might be working in Stripe right now. They might be working in Spotify. But they'll receive an email from us saying, hey, congrats on building Spotify. If at some point in time you want to leave and build your own billion-dollar business, we'd love to support you. And that converts into a lot of applicants. And it's selective, so it's typically pretty high quality. And then we do events, and we do a lot of content creation. We do some online education and so on, which leads to this tremendous growth in applicants. Our application base is growing about 60-70% per year. We get more applicants now in a year than Harvard, Stanford, and MIT combined. It's by far the largest funnel of founder applicants in the world, which also means that we are making more investments, but the selectivity is growing up significantly. So last year, we backed about 2.4 founders out of 1,000 applicants, and that's the flywheel working. Great founders leads to great companies, leads to strong returns. Strong returns means we can invest more into the platform, which means we get even stronger founders. That leads to strong gravitas and word of mouth which ultimately has been the deciding factors for why so many other early stage large platforms have been able to generate really strong stable returns over a long period of time, like why Combinator, Sequoia, and Andres and Horowitz and so on, because they built really strong gravitas in the platform and the flywheel keeps getting stronger every year. You've now gone out and gotten all these applicants coming in. It's a huge number to process. How do you narrow the funnel to decide who's going to come into your cohorts? We use data to do this. It's a similar tool to Haystack, which automatically gives people a score. Now, this program is pretty good at identifying really good people, but it's also giving a lot of false negatives. So you need to go through the reject pile because some of the very best people might be there. Because unfortunately, most AI models looking at assessing people these days, they're pretty good at finding specific types of people, but there's also just certain things it can't understand yet. So we use data for the rest. People will fill in a self-assessment, do a personality test. For about 10% of the applicants, we do a 15-minute review interview, which is basically testing for a few very specific things. Is it the right time? Are they really serious about this? Do they have a spike? Do they have some of those criteria that we're looking for in a great founder? And subsequent to that, 
a few of those get selected for partner interviews. Then we do two one-hour partner interviews. And after that, we select the top 2%. Throughout that entire funnel, we're looking for a spike. So we want to see something in the founders that are better than most other people. We're looking for drive, which is a combination of ambition and having shown the ability to execute. And we're looking for grit, meaning there are people for whom failure is not an option. A little bit like I was speaking about in Special Forces selection earlier, that just will power through to make their ambition work. So you mentioned spike. What is a spike? So a spike is something about an individual that they're better at than most other people. If you look at most very successful founders in the world, they're quite spike individuals. They're really good at something, better than most other people on something. They might have other areas where they're not that strong. So we just want to identify an area where they're much stronger than other people. It could be that they're very deep in a specific algorithm, specific computer language, they're very good product developers. It could be that they are a friend of yours who walks into an elevator with 12 strangers and when the elevator hits the bottom floor, they're a friend with everyone. So they're just good with people. But we want to see something they're truly exceptional at. Most founders tend to be really great at one or two things and they leverage that strength and they know that strength and they build a team of people around them who have different strengths that ultimately creates a much higher performing team that a team set people are just average and everything. So at that stage of the game, are you concerned at all with the business they're talking about? Yeah. So at that point in time, it's just about the person. People write about their idea and what they're thinking about doing and their ambition and so on, but we don't really value that so much. And so you bring them in for this 200-day program. What is the program? People come in. What they're focused on at that point in time is iterating their business model. Some people have multiple ideas. Some people have one idea they thought about for a long time. Some people just started thinking about what to build. Some people are looking for co-founders. First, really very much on the team. Then after a while, then moving and iterating business models forward. What's your decision process after that period of time about getting involved with capital? So after the three months, you have a very good understanding of the teams, their momentum, and what they're working on. Just imagine working with one of your investment prospects for three months or sitting in the leadership team meeting of a company you're considering investing into for three months in a row. The level of depth and the insight you have into the quality of the team and the business model they're working on is pretty exceptional. And then we codify all of that. So we built an internal tool called Antrifusion. We brought on board an amazing person who joined us in the early days from BlackRock. Everything we do all across the world is done on one technology system. And there, people are being assessed really amongst three dimensions. One is the quality of the team, which we spoke a lot about already. But on top of being an individual, it's the quality of the team and the team working together. The second thing is we look at the quality of the product they're trying to build and literally the product market fit. So it's product and market. Still, the team is much more important. If you have an exceptional team where the idea still needs work and the product still needs work, you can still back them. If you have an exceptional idea, but we figure out the team is not AAA, top-notch, you tend not to back them because so early on, ideas still really iterate a lot. So those are the things that we look at. And then based off of that, we make a decision on whether we want to invest or not. How do you decide how much capital to put in at that stage? The capital is predetermined. So that's quite important. So once we select founders to join the program, we already sign an option agreement with them that we can invest a certain amount of capital at a certain valuation. Now, that is important because very often after a while they've been in the program and they're moving forward very fast, there's a lot of other VCs coming and knocking on the door. So we have already secured our investment rights. So for example, in the US, we invest then 250K in cash for about 9% equity. And then we put in another 250K commitment for their follow-on round. In total, a 500K commitment, but 250K coming in up front. And it's only us doing that round. This is the one thing that we're focusing on being the best at, is finding really exceptional founders and being a great partner to them in the early days. And we obviously follow on as well, but the core to our returns is that process. So that team that gets that initial 250K in the US, they're then leaving your offices. So how do you go about supporting them once you've made that first investment? Once we made the first investment, they can actually still stay in our office for another two to three months. But they typically end up growing quite quickly. So they outgrow and get their own offices. They're still assigned a coach. So we check in with them more or less weekly. 
typically what they need support with is in the early days, it's getting the product to the market, getting the first customer, sometimes hiring. We have a strong network of customers. We have a strong network of advisors who can support on the product. And then within a few months, they typically will raise their next round if they have a lot of momentum. Then we have this network of more than 3,000 VCs and 2,600 angel investors where we can make very relevant introductions. We also have many LPs who are interested in co-investing and we can make those introductions. So a lot of portfolio companies look at us as almost like a third or fourth co-founder because we can support with a system and a community on a lot of those things that are very important in the early days. There's a lot going on here. 27 regions. You just crossed a thousand companies you've invested in. You're talking about multiple thousands of potential partners or the venture capitalists down the road. How do you keep track of everything so you can continue to make good decisions about funding in later stages? Technology is critical. We built a technology platform, which means that we get stronger the more nodes we have. We built a partnership structure where we get stronger the more great people we have in the organization. So scale for us becomes a strength instead of creating complexity. Now, how do we do that? A is data, right? So we're very data-driven. So we track founders even before they applied. They visit our website. They do this. They read the newsletter, wherever it is. Then we track them through the application funnel. Then we work with them in person. Then they're part of the portfolio. We gather data the entire way. We use that data to optimize decision-making, optimize the funnel. The other is... In lack of a better word, you call them kind of productivity tools, which is ensuring that the scouting process, the programs, the ICs, everything is run on the technology platform. So if I go and do a coaching meeting where I take my coaching notes, it's on Antifusion. If I do an IC, it's in Antifusion. So in that way, things are done in the same way everywhere. And then scale becomes an opportunity for you to learn. So when we run 27 locations in parallel, that's 27 years worth of learning in one year compared to just running one location. If you capture that learning and if you use it to improve your processes, we can test out things in that way quite rapidly. So we could test something in three locations, see if it leads to better outcomes or worse outcomes. If it's better outcomes, it goes into the new best practice bucket. If it's worse outcomes, it goes into, okay, we're not going to do this again anywhere. If it doesn't lead to anything, it's still in the unknown bucket. That's the second thing is learning. And then the third is it creates tremendous network effects. We work with VCs. Sequoia is a good example. Obviously, now Sequoia is split in three. We work with them in China. We work with them in Southeast Asia. We work with them in India. We work with them in Europe. We work with them in the US. And we still work with all of those parts currently across the globe. We work with Andreessen Horowitz across the globe. We work with Y Combinator everywhere. And we can make great introductions. And it's the same with advisors. It's the same with access to customers with talent. We have a talent platform now of the very best founders we didn't end up backing with more than 6,000 people on the platform so people can hire people. And that means that we provide not only kind of value to the founders, but also to the ecosystem. So they want to be part of the network. So think, for example, Andreas and Horowitz's first investments in Norway was an Antler company. And Y Combinator's first investment in Vietnam was an Antler company. Because we build trust with these larger allocators across very many different nodes. And that network effect is incredibly important. We created a technology platform where data, learning, and network effects means that scale becomes an advantage instead of creating additional complexities. And we give leverage to really great people. So instead of being just a collection of great individuals, the sum of the parts is much bigger and much stronger than the parts themselves. I'd love to hear an example or two of this idea that you have 27 years at once, some lessons that you learned that you could then apply as best practices, or maybe a lesson that you learned that you decided you weren't going to do again. One great example of something we're not going to do again, our most operandi is we do two cohorts per year in each location. So let's say you want to join as a founder in New York. If the cohort starts today, the next time for you to join is six months from now. Now, most founders is in a bit of a hurry and they don't want to wait six months until the next course starts. So they're just going to start building a business. So that's a lost opportunity for us. So we thought, okay, let's not do courts, but let's try out this thing called the rolling program, where we bring on board 10 new founders every month. And then every month we'll do an investment committee and either 10 founders would leave or we'll invest into them. So you'd always have 100 founders in the office, but 10 of them will get replaced every month, which logically makes sense because that means we're always open for business. We tried that out in 
Australia and Africa, a few other places. While it logically makes sense, it led to worse outcomes. And I think the reason why it led to worse outcomes is when you have 100 people coming in together, it creates a certain type of pressure. It creates opportunity for people to meet more co-founders. It creates opportunity for people to push forward amongst the same agenda. It creates a little bit of competition. It creates deadlines. So there's all this human psychology into how a cohort works, which you can't replicate through a rolling program. So even if it logically makes sense, the outcomes ended up being worse. We tried it, I think, six times in total. So that's equivalent to three years worth of learning. We're never going to do it again because it just doesn't work. That's a good example of what we tried and didn't work. So how did you solve for that missed opportunities of founders that maybe just missed one of your cohorts so would otherwise have to wait six months? So the way we do it now is 20% we do direct investments. So if it's really exceptional people, you need to have a very high level of conviction because when we look at a deal where they haven't been in our office for three months, we need to feel the same level of confidence as we would having worked with someone for three months, right? So the bar is incredibly high, but we can invest in them just directly without doing the program. And then we remain in contact. If it's two to three weeks after the program started, they might could drop into the current one. Otherwise, we just try to stay close to them. And very often they will actually end up joining anyways the next one, unless they're really far ahead. So the loss is not that high. But at the same time, I think if you think about the space of what we're doing, it's a tremendous amount of really exceptional founders out there. We need it to be in a position where we could come in and invest into them. But we know as a fact that just last year, we said no to more than 130,000 people. Amongst that group of people, there are going to be some really exceptional people. But at least we've been in the position to potentially make an investment. I think it was Mark Andreessen who said, LeBron James scored more points than anyone else in the NBA. But he also missed more shots than most other players. But he was in a position still to win. And I think you got to learn from missed opportunities, but you can't fret too much about it. So going back, what's an example of something that you learned that became part of your best practices that might not have been obvious otherwise? One big thing that we introduced is the pre-IC. So let's say 100 people come in to the program here in New York. Then three months later, you're doing an investment committee. You might actually want to, after a month, do a pre-IC to just weed out a few of the people who came on board who are not serious enough. One bad apple in a great team. It can create a much more trouble. So we actually seen that the quality of the work we do and the quality of the rest of the program becomes much higher when we create a one-month gateway. If we brought in people who don't have the right level of ambition, we ask them to go and build their business elsewhere. It's always hard to push people out, but it creates so much more quality after. So that's something we tried out in a bunch of locations. It led to really good outcomes and we replicated it. So that's a big thing. But there's also small things is in Norway, they started testing this specific way to use LinkedIn, which led to that specific channel as a sourcing algorithm we replicated everywhere. And I think it led to an uptick in itself of 5% on application numbers. There are small things like this, and there's really big things. How do you think about, in the case of these lessons, measuring outcomes? Because you're investing at the early stage. It's a long time before you'll ultimately know if there's success or not. Yet you're drawing lessons to say how we had better outcomes or worse outcomes based on a sample of a month or three months. We looked at around 36,000 startups and then leading indicators for how they ended up succeeding. This is all public data. And then we looked at our own data where we had around 400,000 applicants so far, more than 1,000 portfolio companies. And we looked at what are leading indicators that leads to specific outcomes. And obviously, it's something we get smarter on every day. And we'll get smarter and smarter as our data set increases. I think we add now millions and millions of data points every year. A current hypothesis that the 10 most important things broadly split in three categories are one, the quality of the scouting funnel, two, the quality of the portfolio, which is more lagging indicators, and then three, operational indicators. If you look at the quality of the scouting platform, there are four things that really matters. A, application volume, which is more actually to do with the momentum. So if in New York, you get 5,000 applicants for one court, and the next court, you get 4,000 applicants. That's an indicator of the whole system possibly being less popular. So you want to see a growth in the number of applicants, at least up to a certain peak. You want to see a share of experienced founders being high. For us, experienced founders are founders who made it to 
Series A or Series B or made a certain amount of revenue. They don't necessarily have a massive IPO or sold their company for a billion dollars, but they accomplished something, a big milestone. Or they are serial founders who did exit the last business and now they're building the next one. The third thing on the quality of the scouting funnel is founder acceptance rate. So if we give an offer to a founder, what percentage of them accept it? It's a very negative signal if they don't accept it or if they take money from someone else than you. And then lastly is selectivity. Call to record is typically much higher if we admit 2% of the founder applicants instead of 10% of the founder applicants. So that's the leading indicators. Then the lagging indicators are more straightforward. It's 12 months MYC growth, 24 months MYC growth, fund through rate, what percentage of our portfolio raised subsequent capital, how many rent subsequent capital over a certain amount of dollars. So they give you a fairly good idea, 12 to 18 to 24 months on the momentum of the court. And we see quite interesting linear trajectory on MIC growth in our portfolio. After four years, it's about 5.3x, and it's increasing quite linear towards that. But there's differences between courts in each location. And then there are operational KPIs, which is founder MPS score, how happy are the founders about us? and us as supporters. And then we do a team MPS score, which is how happy is our team. And we can literally stack rank every single court, every single location. You can also link the decision-making to each individual partner. So people have a very clear idea in terms of how well they are doing. Now, on occasion, there will be a good court and a bad court. There will be some chance to this. Sometimes there are also macroeconomic things that leads to a specific type of situation in a specific market, right? If you look at Israeli founders right now, we have several Israeli founders who temporarily had to go back to Israel given the current crisis. So you need to obviously look at these type of black swan events and random things that happen. But in general, you can form a pretty good view on quality. And you can also benchmark things up against each other. And there we have a major advantage. We can benchmark 60 to 100 courts per year. And we can tie every single of them on the decision-making basis back to individuals and thereby consistently improve our organization and create systematic advantages. I'd love to hear some about your organization in that this is a very difficult activity to scale in terms of the amount of capital you're putting to work, yet you're doing this in great scale. How many people are involved on the Antler team? Yes, we're 256 full-time people across Antler. We also have about 10 venture partners by location. So these are part-time people. For example, Andreas Ann, who was the CTO of Spotify, will dedicate a few hours to support founders out of Singapore. And we have people like that who've dedicated some of their time to support the founders. And then we have a thousand advisors. When you look at the full-time employees, the vast majority of the partners that join Antler are very carry incentivized. So there are people who've been founders before. So when you build a company, you typically don't come into that journey for an immediate payday. You come there for equity upside. And in our sense, that's carry upside. And we've created a partnership where carry is very fairly distributed across organizations. If you run, for example, India, or if you run the Nordics, if you run the US now, 75% of the carry goes to the partners who run it. And then we put 25% of the carry into a global pool, which is shared with everyone. If you deliver on our target return of 6x, that's carry upside where you get 75% of it. So it's a big upside. And then we try to keep salaries at the level where it covers basic living costs. And you see the same actually with most early stage funds. The same with Y Combinator. Partners don't take a very big salary but they have significant carry upside in the funds. That's very much how we're structured. This works incredibly well. As you have all these teams in the different locations doing the investing, what's the centralized activity that's building all the technology, sharing these best practices, and how does all that work? We have a global support team, which I lead, which is fully focused on creating leverage for the partnership. The most important thing they do is building technology. So we have a tech team of about 15 people who build out Android Fusion which includes the productivity tools I spoke about earlier, the data platform, but also crude tools for the founders, right? So we have their access to our investor database with all of the VC relationships and the angel relationships. So let's say I'm a health tech company in Africa that needs to raise my Series A. You can go in there and put in that criteria and out pops, okay, here are 40 relationships that Antler have. Who would make the introduction? Or do we have a portfolio company that have backed them? Can we make an introduction to them so we can create a competitive advantage in terms of funding rounds for our portfolio? 
There's the talent network I spoke about. It's the advisory network. There's the founder community. There's the perks platform. So we negotiated free credits with Microsoft Azure, AWS, Stripe. Any type of platform or API an early stage startup needs to use. We can offer for most of them. It's like almost a million dollars worth of free services. So all this is technology enabled. It's also what makes the data and the learning and the network effects work. So that's one part of the global support team. Then we have legal, compliance, and finance. So that's fully centralized. It's obviously incredibly important that the people we bring on board take responsibility for this, but we also need checks and balances of all regulation, investor reporting, all this stuff. So that's a centralized function. Then we have marketing and brand. A lot of founders won't know anyone in Sequoia, but they just know that Sequoia is a name they want on their cap table. And building and maintaining that gravitas is insanely important. So we have a common brand across all of our locations. And then we have a capital team there. So about 40% of the capital we raise globally is raised through a global capital team and the rest we raise locally. So there's a number of these functions where it just makes sense that you do the same everywhere, combined with there being strong synergies of centralizing it. And it's all about creating leverage for the partners. The decision-making on investing is done on the region level. I don't see how I could fly into Bangalore or into Tokyo or into Oslo or into New York and make a better investment decision than the partners we brought on board to be on the ground. But we can build systems that gives them a systematic advantage and we can measure data to optimize and improve on the decision-making process and ensure that we have the right people everywhere. With all of this data of all these companies, I'd love to ask you about a couple of lessons you've learned along the way. Maybe the first one is... What have you found are the success factors of entrepreneurs in working their way through your pipeline? The characteristics of a successful founder we went through quickly earlier, having a spike, having drive, and having a tremendous amount of grit. Now, once you have that, you need to ensure that you bring on board one or two or three other people who is similarly as strong and share a common set of values. And we have a pretty detailed questionnaire and view on what makes an exceptional founder team. There's this myth that you're better off building a company with someone you've known for a very long period of time. Yes, sometimes that's the case. But sometimes also building something with your brother or sister or your colleague or somebody you went to college with is very different from being in that scenario with them. So there's actually very many founder teams who've selected someone who they happen to know for a long time, which actually would be way better off meeting 50 to 100 exceptional people and picking the best of those. If you go into that, through having met each other under the presumption that you're trying to find a co-founder, you ask the questions first and then you fall in love later. But if you meet someone organically, you fall in love first and then you ask the questions. So we ask our co-founders to spend real time meeting a tremendous amount of really interesting, smart people before they make the choice on who they want to build with. And then once you've done that, there are a few learnings I made on the way. One of them is, as a founder, you need to front load. When you're building a business, let's say kind of Antler in the really early days, when it was only me, if I binge watch Netflix or chose to take a week vacation to go surfing, nothing happened with Antler. It was standstill. And it's really like that for a while when you build a business. You might have a co-founder, but the effective hours you can put into every week is insanely important to create momentum. And momentum creates momentum in the startup world. If you raise a bit of capital and you can't make anything happen... It's very hard to raise next round. It's very hard to hire people. It's very hard to get customers. If you create early momentum, all that gets easier. And the only one who can create it in the early days is the founder. So therefore, you need to exchange time in the future for time right now and double down the first two to three, four years. You have no choice. You got to put in as much effective time as you can. When I speak to founders, I would like to say that call all your family, call your friends and tell them you're incredibly busy over the next few years. If they want to spend time with you, they should come and help you build your business. I think if you ask any very successful founders build something truly incredible, they will talk about the first three, four years being like this. Then after that, you actually have some choice because you put together a great team. You have customers, you have momentum. You can choose to work a little bit less or you can choose to work more. Unfortunately, most founders tend to be <laughs> quite obsessed. So they end up working incredibly hard until they exit and then they might start another business. But at least you have the choice. So number one, front-loading. Second is learning how to hustle. So I come from Norway, where they have Jan Loven, which is basically says that you shouldn't think that you're better than anyone else. You shouldn't think that you can accomplish more than your neighbor. If somebody says no, you should never ask them again. And it's similar 
for a lot of founders, also it's hard to go out there and leaving your pride behind and hustling, right? Asking people for help, asking people to be a customer, asking people to work with you when you can't really pay them. You can only sell a vision. Asking people to be your first investor. And there are so many examples of people getting nose and then giving up on the way. And there are other examples where people never gave up. Spotify, I think, is a great example. I think for years, they tried to raise capital. They spoke to all the VCs in Europe at the time. I think they got 23 no's before they get the first yes. If you're a great founder, you must believe in your product and your team. So the investors you're trying to convince, you're doing them a favor by investing into you. The customers you're trying to bring on board, you're doing them a favor for them being your customer. You got to believe in your product so much. You got to hustle. You can't take no as an answer. If you get a no, you got to meet 10 more people and get 10 more no's. And for a lot of founders, that is actually a hard thing to learn. Some people are born that way. I was not born that way. I had to learn that. And it's insanely important to succeed. And lastly, it's the one thing we spoke about earlier is grit, right? That you can't go into building a business with the mindset that failure is potentially an option. You can't go in and say, hey, let me try this. I might learn a lot. And if I don't succeed, I can just go back to my day job. You got to go in there and put everything in there. Very often it's actually not necessarily the best team that wins, but it's the team that never gave up. And then they become the best on the way. What have you seen in geographies other than the common hubs of entrepreneurship and startups? I think the US, a little bit of China, parts of Europe, and all the other geographies. There's always a set of global themes that you see everywhere. That cadence is increasing. So there used to be a time where you'd see something happening in China, let's say, and then a few years later, you'd see it in Southeast Asia, or you'd see something happen in the US, and then a couple of years later, you see it in Europe. The cadence behind that has gone down drastically. If there are exciting ideas being built one place in the world, very quickly it's being built everywhere in the world. And being global in that sense is quite fascinating because we have founders who came in and in Asia, I want to build a specific thing. And we could already show them here's 124 other teams across the globe looking at doing the exact same thing that you are doing. And that can be quite informative in terms of setting out what ID to build. Now, obviously, there are very different opportunities in Africa, for example, than you'd see in London. In London, there's a lot of very successful fintech companies. If you go to Helsinki, where we just set up an office, there's been a tremendous amount of really successful cybersecurity companies, hardware companies, gaming companies. If you go to the US, you can build anything here. You can do proven models. You can do really deep tech stuff. If you go to Nairobi, where I'm off, is a lot of proven models still, right? So it's actually local innovations. So you'll take a model which was very successful, let's say, in Asia or in the US, and then innovate locally on those models. So there's a tremendous amount of more traditional business models where you can still build billion-dollar businesses. The other thing in some markets is major infrastructure change. So in India, there's this tremendous opportunity that has arisen over the last few years where first they introduced digital ID. So you can identify now 1.4 billion people. Then they built a payment system, which is linked to that ID. So now you can pay for almost anything online. It's a common infrastructure. So the friction of payment has gone down drastically. So for example, one of the issues with building businesses in India prior is that the basket size is much lower. So for example, if you're building an e-commerce in India, your basket size might be five bucks. But in the US, it might be 70 bucks. And obviously, on 70 basket size versus five buck baskets, you can allow much higher transaction costs. So for example, if you buy a bus ticket in India for three cents, previously, you wouldn't be able to to earn money on that because the payment price would just be too high. But now you can due to one common digital infrastructure for payments. So this is a major specific platform shift for India that you won't see in the US or in Europe. The other stuff, you have a common banking infrastructure, which has been rolled out in the US. In Europe now, they're also rolling out the digital currency infrastructure right now. So it's quite interesting to follow this more regulatory, governmental infrastructure setup that will really affect innovation. Those are the three takeaways. So one is, hey, the cadence of innovation is moving much more rapidly on a global pace. Two, there are still differences in terms of opportunities based on where the ecosystem is. And then three, there are these very specific regional opportunities that are very exciting for founders that unless you're there on the ground and you have teams on the ground, you won't be able to capture And the earlier you go, the more important that is. Later stage, you actually can make investments from other locations because you're much more looking at the business as a business as you would a public market business. You've scaled this quite a bit in just the last six or seven years, and you're talking about growing the applicants in your cohorts. I'm curious, what are your objectives and where do you want to take this over time? We want to be singularly focused on one thing, which is being the best partner to great founders all across the globe as they're just getting started. 
And that means finding the best people and have access to the best people through being their best partner, which is then what we do in terms of supporting our portfolio. So we're constantly working on optimizing on that, learning that, and we'll scale that a little bit, right? We can make a few more investments per year in New York. We can make a few more investments per year in Bangalore. There's a few more cities we might launch, like Tel Aviv, West Coast of Africa, a few more cities in the US and so on, but it's not that many more locations, right? So very much now it's focused on the core, making that better and better, increasing selectivity. I ultimately believe that if you're very focused on doing one thing really great, that's how you can deliver systematically better returns. And the other thing we're doing from a capital perspective is becoming more of a full stack investor. So I mentioned earlier, we have a separate strategy where we now invest up to series C. And the way we structure that up is also very much to create system values. So one is for the founders. So if I come to you as a founder and I say, hey, I can put up to a million dollars into your business over two rounds. That's obviously attractive. But if I come to you and say, I can put up to 30, 40 million into your business over five rounds, you become a longer partner. So you get access to even better founders. At the same time, when you look at us doing a Series A deal into our own portfolio, we decided to put a few principles in place to avoid any conflict of interest. So first of all, we don't lead rounds into our own portfolio. So there are many multi-stage funds that could lead a Series A and they can also lead a Series B. We don't do that because we don't want to mark our own homework. So the valuation of the subsequent round is set by another tier one VC or investors. We only co-invest with other tier one investors and they set the price. Now, at that point of time, we obviously also have more data and insights on that company than anyone else, right? Because we've selected the founder. We worked with them in person for three to six months. We backed them typically in the seed round as well. We have all their data and KPIs from day zero. So we can combine the market interest with our own data view and put more capital to work in the very best of our online portfolio companies. And if there's one thing early stage investing shows, it's if you can concentrate capital in the winners, the absolute returns that you can deliver back to LPs and the DPI you can deliver increases quite considerably. So that's the second part we're focusing on. So A is continuing to build a better and better platform to be the best partner through the best founders and being for them. And then two, continuing to improve and build out our multi-stage strategy so that we can deliver great returns back to our LPs. So at the onset, you talked about the importance of finding something that you have a passion for. That's what got you through to succeed in special forces. What is that today as you're growing Antler? We have this tremendous opportunity to support the next generation great founders all across the globe to solve important problems. And if there's one thing that I believe is that the future will not have less problems than the past. And if you just look at some of the problems the world is facing today, from climate change to health tech to access to finance to the uninsured, whatever it might be, these problems are not going to be solved by governments. They're going to be solved by great people innovating. We want to create a platform where we enable as many of the world's best people to do that. I think the more people who choose to spend their time innovating and driving the economy forward, the better the world will be, not only by solving these problems, but also leading to economic growth and productivity increases. So that's one big thing. The other thing that we're quite passionate about is creating a quality of opportunity. One of the reasons why I loved studying in the US, I always loved coming here, is I think the US is built on this dream that anyone can succeed. And obviously, it's not always the case yet, but very much there's a mantra here of creating an opportunity for everyone to move through the stratospheres of society. And there are so many self-made, incredibly successful entrepreneurs here. And we want to do the same at a global level, right? Ensure that the very best founders in the world who want to innovate have access to a platform and a network where we can support them to use that skill set in solving really important problems. And that's quite exciting because I think traditionally to build a business, you've been quite dependent on networks. You need people to support you in the early days. You need access to co-founders, you need access to capital. Obviously in Silicon Valley now, we have the best networks in place for this in the world. But if you go to some other cities in the world, those networks doesn't exist unless you happen to be the more privileged part of the society. Now, we actually level the playing field because we provide access to those networks globally, which is why we also see a very diverse set of founders that we back all across the globe. And I think those things in parallel, creating more opportunities for the world's most talented individuals, combined with the importance of innovation to drive the world forward, and then the importance of putting some capital to work into driving that innovation 
is I think what drives most of Antler and is why our mission statement is make progress inevitable. In interacting with all of these founders and all the people on your team, I'd love to hear if there's two or three lessons that you've learned from other people over the course of your career that really influence how you think about investing. One tremendous learning from Warren Buffett, which I always enjoyed, was invest in yourself. So I think that if you're managing your own money, and if you're managing other people's money, you have an obligation to be your best self. So I always thought about how can I become more and more effective every day, every month, every year. So I like to set myself pretty ambitious 10-year goals and then break that down into a one-year goal and break that down into a one-month goal across personal sphere, across work, and across health. And the monthly goal changes every month, but it's related to where I want to be a year from now, which only changes once a year or so, who's related to where I want to be 10 years from now. So I think investing in yourself is incredibly important. And then that will lead to you also be able to invest in your team. Well, Max, I want to make sure I get a chance to ask you a couple of closing questions. So what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I love sports. Any type of long distance, the longer it gets, really, the more excited I get. Whether it's very long hikes, mountaineering. I took a week off in between my last business and building Antler, and I just went hiking alone for a week. Once a year, I tried to do an Ironman. I'm doing a 100K race now in April. Football, hit workouts, cycling, swimming, water sports. That's where you'll find me. What's one fact that most people don't know about you? In the military and special forces and Navy SEALs, one of the insertion methods is sometimes you can jump out of a small plane with a parachute and you have a diving equipment and then you will dive into a submarine or dive into a target. It's a way to get unseen into targets. And we did that one time in up north in Norway where we were jumping out of the plane. We had a bunch of diving equipment and we landed in a whole group of orcas or killer whales. And I just watched the latest was this Frozen Planet 2 or so where they showed the hunting technique of the killer whales. We had a safety boat there at the time, but instead of coming to help us out, they actually pulled up a video camera and started filming them, and you can hear them laughing like crazy. It's a fun story. What's your biggest pet peeve? When people say they're going to do something and they don't do it, we meet all these incredible founders who walk the talk every day. And then I have a number of friends, and they're still very good friends of mine, but I find it so irritating when somebody talks about doing something for 20 years and they never end up doing it. So walk the talk. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? There's many. Lately, Larry Summers, who's on our board, has been very impactful, particularly since obviously we've built this thing through a very interesting time, right? We launched in 2018, then we had COVID, then we had 2021 peak, then we had hyperinflation, there's been wars. He's consistently been there, very meaningful advice, particularly also when it comes to the macroeconomic environment. And I asked him this other day, what do you think should be the main focus well, the platform going forward. And he said, hey, sometimes you should just think about what is required for you to be there in 20 years. If you're there 20 years from now, compounding, adding to your platform, adding the learnings that you're doing today, it's going to be an incredible business. And it's great to think in that long-term view. So it's been very impactful lately. My time in McKinsey was very impactful. Working with Dominic Barton, who was also on our board in the early days, he used to run McKinsey for eight years. And our chairman, Torre Mural, used to be the leader of the senior partner election committee and used to run Europe. Just in terms of set one clear focus for the organization, for McKinsey, that was clients first. For us, it's founders first. We always think about having a founder in the room. If we make a decision, will it make it better for the founders or worse for the founders? If we have great founders coming into Antler, what we do matters. If we don't have great founders coming in, if we don't have access to the best founders in the world, it doesn't really matter how good of a decision maker we are, how good our tech is what access to AM we have and so on. Clear focus on one thing and driving excellence and distinctiveness within that one thing. You learn a lot about through that school and I had great mentors there in Tor and Dominic. And I also want to mention at my time going into Harvard, I had these tremendous classes with Andre Schleifer, who's a behavioral economist there and political economist. I also met his wife, Nancy Zimmerman, who's also now on our advisory board. We talked a lot about when you came in from high school, there's this view on economics being math and theory, and they're starting to learn about behavioral economics and the psychology of business, and already in the freshman years, starting to think about how 
human decision-making and human biases drives a lot of decision-making when it comes to investments. I think it was very helpful very early on in my career and how you take human relationships and the strengths of people. And now, obviously, our core business is assessing great founders. Getting exposed to that so early, very quickly after I came back to the military, was very meaningful. These people have been very impactful in my career. What's the best advice you've ever received? My grandmother probably gave me more great advice than anyone that I ever had. She grew up in Bolivia and Argentina. Her father was building railways in South America. She was growing up in the bush. So it was a big difference between growing up in the farm in Norway. And she always had these tremendous perspectives on the world and would send me books to read, fiction, nonfiction, philosophers. And she would always tell me, as long as you know that there are so many things out there you don't know and you're eager to learn them, that would be very good for you. I want to mention one other one with this Pelham Linfield Roberts, who was my house father in high school. He was a former SAS agent, so he worked for special air services in the UK for many years. Then he went into teaching and politics. And he was quite relevant for me because I went into the special force myself after. And it's a hard choice to make to leave the special forces. And I was thinking a lot about what to do. He put it quite simply for me. You can stay in the special forces, or I was also thinking about becoming a doctor. And that's very meaningful because you have direct impact on things. So if you're a doctor or a surgeon, you go in and do a heart transplant, you can save a patient or two every day. And you directly know that you save that person's life. Or in the military, you go in and you do a hostage rescue operation or whatever it might be. And you have a direct impact on these people's life and safety. If you choose to go the way I've gone now, you have indirect positive impact on a lot of people. If we back a founder who invents a new cancer drug medicine and helps self millions of lives, that's obviously very impactful for the year, for the world, but it's very indirect that we found him, we backed him, and then we backed him with capital. That for me was a very interesting way of framing the world. Do you want to have that direct impact, which is tremendously important, and people doing this work are insanely important for the world, or do you want to have that indirect impact? And I think both of them are important, but comes with different levels of satisfaction and value. All right, Magnus, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Partnering with really great individuals and really putting force behind it. The opportunity to do things is way above ever imagined when you're young, particularly building very strong teams. And they're insanely lucky and privileged to work with so many great people in Antler and also so many people supporting us through our network you can really make great things happen and it's not only down to you. Magnus, thanks so much for sharing this incredible story of backing founders all over the world. Excellent. Thanks a lot for having me and a big fan of your podcast. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at capitalallocators.com to apply for one of the slots. Mm-hmm.